We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. We're just making our way through the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter wrote this to a, a group of Christians kind of spread around the ancient world who were uh, trying to figure out how to live as Christians in this world. What does it look like? Uh, when you're a Christian and so many people around you aren't. So this letter has been immensely helpful to us, and, and we're, we're going to find even more help for us today in, in how to live as Christians. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Let's read them now. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's God's word. There's this story in the life of Jesus. One day, a group of Pharisees and Herodians came to him with a coin. And on one side was the image of Caesar, on the other side was an inscription. Son of the divine Augustus. And they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? These two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were really bitter enemies. But that day, they joined together in a common cause of trapping Jesus. Was he loyal to God or to Caesar? If his answer was yes, pay the tax, he'd anger the Jews who refused to pay it because it seemingly affirmed that inscription, Son of the Divine Augustus. If he said no, it would anger the government who saw the tax as their due. But Jesus didn't fall for the trap. He answered, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In a sentence, Jesus legitimized the Roman government without dethroning God? It was a stunning answer. <laughs> we can obey the government without compromising our Christianity. Obligations to church and state are not necessarily in conflict. Now, government may not be explicitly Christian, but it's still at base good. It derives its goodness from God himself, even if it doesn't formally recognize him. Government is a deeply biblical idea. When God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he, he gave them this cultural mandate, multiply and subdue the earth. Government is one way in which we can fulfill that command. The Bible continually reinforces the basic goodness of government. I mean, Israel became a nation. When in exile, when Israel was pushed out into exile, Jeremiah said to the place that they were going, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. 
Later, Paul said in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. There is a way to live a distinctly Christian life in relation to government. Jesus said so. Jeremiah said so. Paul said so. And here, Peter says so too. Now, Peter's starting a, kind of a new section of his letter here. I mean, so far he's talked about God's mercy. We, we saw that starting in, in chapter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And, and that theme of mercy ran until chapter 2, verse 10. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to, or, I'm sorry, but now you have received mercy. And so now Peter aims to show how that mercy of God has a practical impact on the Christian life. So far, Peter hasn't really told us to do very much, but that, that starts to change in this section. And, and what he commands, <laughs> as we look at it, it's not easy. I mean, you can see the difficulty right from the start. The first two words of verse 13, be subject. Isn't that awful? I mean, who wants to submit? Peter knows that that's a hard thing for us to hear. And that's why he said back in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you. He's urging us on the basis of God's mercy to live as fully formed Christians, to make a positive difference in the world for the glory of God. And that includes voluntary submission and obedience. And this is actually a theme we're going to see in the next few passages. But here, in these verses, 13 through 17, kind of simply put, Peter commands God's people to civil obedience. Now that's an unpopular theme in our day, isn't it? <laughs> civil disobedience is popular. Civil obedience, not so much. Rebellion is cool. But adapting, making it work, submitting, contributing to the solution alongside those we disagree with isn't cool. I mean, especially in this country where we, we can do basically as we please. We're accountable to, to no one except ourselves. Submission in, in a culture like that is a sign that maybe we've just given up. We've handed over our freedom. Our, our liberties are gone and all that remains now is to be ruled by others. Submission is really a, a deeply anti-American quality, isn't it? But it's a distinctly Christian one. I mean, knowing what, who he was and what he came to do, Jesus submitted himself to others. So there's our example. Jesus himself. Now, Peter is expanding on his call in verse 12 to, to keep our conduct honorable. That, that same word used for honorable is used in other parts of the Bible to mean beautiful, noble, praiseworthy, pleasing, excellent. So as we engage with our world in matters of government, it is this call to honorableness that should mark us. 
the more our world spirals down into political division and partisanship and rage and cancellation and on and on, the more we Christians have an opportunity to publicly display the kind of peace Jesus brings into bitter fights and disagreements. As the world looks at Christians in the public square, what should they find? Should they find unreasonableness, unwillingness to cooperate, hostility, even fear? If that's what the world sees as they look at the Christians, then perhaps we've lost our way. The proper path leads to more and more people thinking to themselves and maybe even saying out loud, you know, these Christians, they're really making the world a better place. When that starts happening, we'll know we're living out what Peter is calling us to do. So how do we get there? Well, we only get there by the finished work of Christ on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as part of that power, God gives us three truths to help us in this passage. First, our motivating theme, for the Lord's sake. Second, our secure foundation, the will of God. And third, our great advantage, live as people who are free. So first, our motivating theme, for the Lord's sake. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Why is Peter talking about this? I mean, what, if I was writing this letter, I'm not sure I'd start this, this new section here. It, it seems odd in some ways, doesn't it? But you remember Peter's been going on about how we're sojourners and exiles. He, he's called us a chosen race, a, a royal uh, priesthood, a holy nation, God's possession. So we might start thinking, you know, this, this world doesn't matter. I mean... Why should I give any allegiance to it at all? But Peter actually doesn't want us to go there because we have a dual citizenship. We are both citizens of heaven and citizens of earth. We have a responsibility to live well here as a witness to the mercy of God because we are God's ambassadors and we should take that responsibility seriously. So Peter says, be subject. Now, I don't know about you, but I need a motivator for that command. <laughs> Submit. Okay, why? Well, Peter provides one. The key phrase setting the tone for the entire passage is found right after those words in verse 13. For the Lord's sake. The call to submission is grounded in the privilege of doing it for the Lord's sake. The, we have a motivation that goes far beyond what we feel. It goes into what God wants for us. I love how Pastor John Piper put it. Christians do not submit to human institutions simply because they feel like it or because they have compliant personalities or because institutions have coercive powers. 
We do not look first at ourselves to see what we feel like doing, nor do we look first at the institution to see if there are consequences for not submitting. We look first to God. We submit for His sake. Now, God must have known that we would need this here in 2021. I mean, could this be more relevant to our day? How we act in relation to the government says something about the God that we serve. What do you think the world hears from the Christians today? I mean, I can't help when I ask myself that question, think of the events on January 6th at our Capitol building where those Christian nationalists invaded the building bringing the name of God along with them as they constructed nooses outside while offering prayers in the chambers after terrorizing our country's lawmakers. I don't think that's what Peter had in mind. Now, of course, that's an extreme example. I don't think any of us would have been there. But most of our objections to government authority don't rise to the level of riots and invasions. They're far more subtle. They're, I don't know, Facebook posts. They're uh, Fox News and CNN. Um, It's not hard to find reasons not to submit to the government. Just turn your TV on. Someone will tell you. But if we find it difficult to live this passage out in our day, in our time, let's remember the context in which Peter wrote. The rulers of Peter's day were not easy men to respect. First, there was Nero, the Roman emperor who led a great persecution against the Christians. There was Pontius Pilate who handed Jesus over to be crucified. There was Felix who imprisoned Paul and and kept him there even as Paul invited him to hear the gospel. These were not easy days and Peter wrote in very difficult circumstances under very difficult to submit to leaders. And he didn't call for a culture war. He called us to fit in, to cooperate, to positively contribute to the world of civic duty and responsibility. Why? Well, not for the sake of political leaders, good or bad. Not even for his own sake or for the sake of his fellow Christians, but for the Lord's sake. Therein lies all of our motivation. The Lord is asking us to do this. Christians obey the government out of our obedience to Jesus. Not because of the government's greatness, but because of Jesus' greatness. Jesus gave us our government. And even if it isn't as great as it could be, almost any government is better than no government at all. Almost any government provides some semblance of civil order. Almost any government, as Peter says, punishes those who do evil and praises those who do good. God created government for the good of this world, and we submit to it for his sake because he's the Lord and he's asking us to. But why would he ask us to? Because as we submit to our political leaders, we say something about who God is. There's a great example of this in the 1950s in East Africa. 
a pastor named Festo Kavengeri. He was a Ugandan pastor. He, he lived through this time of intense political turmoil there. I mean, there was constant conflict and war. We would not want to live there. He wrote a book called Revolutionary Love. It's kind of his uh, testimony, as it were, a biography of sorts. And in that story, he tells about what God began to do there in East Africa in the 50s. And he tells a story about the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya aimed at turning this whole uh, tribe into freedom fighters against the British using this, this really violent, brutal guerrilla warfare. And as part of being a member of this, of this group who, who had waged this war, they were required to take an oath to murder. Well, the Christians in that tribe uh, agreed that Kenya should have freedom, but they wouldn't kill to make it happen. So how'd the tribe respond? They killed the Christians. Kavindri writes, Christian resistors were quietly strangled on the path or chopped up with machetes at night in their homes. The government officers, the British government officers assumed that they, well, they must be allies to us. So they offered them guns for self-protection. Here's what the Christians said. No, thank you. We love you. And we love our tribal brothers. How can we tell the ones in the forest about the love of God if we're holding guns? A, a few years later, one of the Mau Mau fighters had come to Christ, and he tells about how it happened. He says, I was one who led a group of fighters to attack a Christian family at night. We were ordered to do it because they were hardcore resistors. But to my surprise, that man loved us. He said that he was not at all afraid to die, for he would immediately be with Jesus. Then he pleaded with us, not for his life, but for ours, that we would awake and repent while there was still time. We killed him. But he died praying, Father, please forgive them and give them time to turn about. We went back to the forest. But the face of that man and his love never left me. At last, his Jesus found me. And now I want to tell everyone about him. Coventry writes, how do you destroy Christians like that? You beat them, they love you. You put them to shame, they think you've given them an opportunity to be creative. You kill them, and they win you. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Demanding our way doesn't wow the world, but following our brothers and sisters of Kenya Ken in God's hands saves souls. Which path would we rather take? When more and more people start respecting Jesus because of the actions of his followers, we know then that we will have truly entered into Christian politics. 
That is the upward call of Christ upon his people. For the Lord's sake, not for ours. For the name of Jesus, not for our own name. And as we do this, we find a surprisingly secure foundation for it all, which is our second point, the will of God. Submitting to the government is not a step outside of Christianity. It's a step inside of God's will. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's the secure foundation we stand upon. In Peter's day, the Christians had a bad reputation. They were this new upstart group that wasn't easily classified into the existing religious groups. I mean, by a way of misunderstanding of communion, there were rumors that the Christians got together to eat human flesh. When, when uh, the, the leaders asked them not to talk about Jesus anymore, they said, well, we hear you, but we have to listen to God. Countless Christians were imprisoned. And just imagine the reputation that that earned the entire group. In more than one way, the, world, the word on the street was that the Christians were up to no good. They were a problem and they needed to be dealt with. So what good does submission do in circumstances like that? Well, for starters, Peter says, it's a great apologetic against the popular view of Christians as socially harmful. Notice, Peter says, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People think they know what Christians are like. But as we live in submission to Jesus, we surprise them, just like those Kenyans in the 1950s. We show the world that we have a higher authority. And he doesn't actually stand against this world at all costs. He entered into this world to save us. Where we can, Christians are actually more than happy to go along. In fact, we'll go even further than you might think. This world is full of people looking to get as much as they can. But Christians are that crazy counterculture looking to give as much as they can. For Jesus' sake. Submitting to governing authorities isn't actually opposed to our faith. In fact, it's part of it. It's God's will. This is so important in our day, just as it was for Peter's. Because as we look around... I don't think we have a great name to the wider world, do we? We should. We should. For the Lord's sake. It's so easy for us Christians to live in fear of the next president or of the next vote or of the next policy proposal. Some of them actually are fearful, (laughs) fear-inducing. But fear is not the way that God asks us to live our public lives. We have here this general truth that Peter's applying to us. Christians should submit and obey in most situations in relation to governing authorities. And in fact, we should go even further. Ours isn't a weak obedience. That's not what he's calling us from. You know, this disengagement from the real people occupying those offices. No, we pray for them. We speak well of them as best we can. We, in a word, love them. Even if they don't love us. Because that's the will of God. Another example from the life of Festo Cavendry. 
When he lived in Uganda in the 1970s, a, a Muslim dictator uh, took over named Idi Amin. He was awful. Terrible human being. But God, at the same time, was bringing revival to East Africa, and he was changing hearts. And one of the hearts he changed was Kavendri's. What was the response from Kavendri, an Anglican pastor, to Idi Amin, the violent Muslim dictator? He wrote a book called I Love Idi Amin. <laughs> he got a lot of flack for that book, but he didn't recant because he meant it. Idi Amin was terrible, but Kavendri was going to love him for Jesus' sake because he knew that was God's will. What can a nation say about Christians who do such things? They're put to silence by their goodness for the Lord's sake because they're living inside of His will. Christian goodness in this area stands as an apologetic for the gospel. Reasonableness stands against the prevailing image of unreasonableness. Real love for our leaders, even not so great ones, silences the accusers of God's people. If we throw ourselves into the good things of politics with an overwhelmingly positive voice of submission to authority and willingness to come alongside as peacemakers with a message of the love of Christ, we confound our accusers, and God's name is honored. And of course, we have freedom. We can and cannot do this. And in our country, we have more freedom than in other countries. But how we use our freedom proves where our true submission lies. Jesus taught us that freedom is for serving. That liberties are for laying down, not for taking up at all costs. We can live as people who are free because in Christ, we are free. We don't have to demand it. We already have it, even if the government won't recognize it. And that leads us to our third point. Our great advantage, live as people who are free. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, we have this advantage as Christians that non-Christians don't have. We can actually live as people who are free because we are free. The Bible says, for freedom Christ has set us free. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Non-Christians do not have that freedom. They live for the approval of man because they don't know the approval of God in Christ. They live in fear because their life exists here and here alone. But we Christians are different. We're free. And it's not because we have no limitations. I mean, how can you look at a passage like this and not see limitations? 
Freedom is defined in our day, in our culture, as the removal of all limitations, isn't it? I mean, it's being totally free from anybody and anything. No rules, no lines, no boundaries at all. But really, that's false freedom. We can never truly be free like that. Because we're designed for a particular purpose. And only inside of those lines can we find the freedom we long for. The the best illustration I've ever heard of this comes from a book by Charles Hummel called uh, Becoming Free. Now, I've never read that book, but I've heard Tim Keller talk about it, so he gets the credit here. Here's what he, he says about it. Imagine a fish. The fish is in the water. The fish says, I hate being confined and restrained to the water. It's just not fair. I don't like this restriction. I mean, I'm a free creature. So the fish says, I've never been up there on the land. I'm going to go. He gets up on the land, and the next thing you know, he's, he's flopping around and gasping and dying. Why? Because he's not designed for the land. But you put the fish back in the water, and with a flick of his tail, he's darting everywhere. He's going wherever he wants to go because he's finally back in the environment that he was designed for. When he's restricted to the water, he's absolutely free in the water. All of his potential is released. All of the things that he couldn't possibly do on the land, he can now do in the water. And Keller says, if you believe in a God who created all things, he created you for himself. What that means is that the only true water for your soul is in full service to him. We are like the fish. God created us and put us in this world and gave us the limitations of his word. Many people see the Bible as overly restrictive. They think, I mean, who would want to live like that? But the truth is, God's word, with its limitations, gives us ultimate freedom. When we operate inside of his commands, we're free to do a thousand things we couldn't otherwise do. For example, we're free from uncontrollable emotions and desires. We're free from our fear of circumstances. We're free to serve, to love, to submit, to obey, to do a thousand good things that we couldn't do otherwise. We're free to do everything that God calls us to do and be everything that God is making us into in Christ by his spirit. It's in the Bible where we find the will of God for our lives, even in passages like this. And when we know we're operating inside of God's will, doesn't that feel good? Don't you feel free? Now, of course, this is a paradox. I mean, (laughs) the only way for us to find this freedom is by coming under the rule of Christ. The Bible actually uses a a stronger word, the word slave. We must become a slave of Christ. The Bible says everyone is actually a slave to something. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ, but none of us escape this. If we're slaves to sin, we're held captive by sin's passions and desires. It doesn't matter what we tell ourselves about how free we are. We're not free at all. Circumstances rule us. Bodily passions rule us. Fear drives us. We do whatever sin wants us to do. 
we can't do the good things that we want because sin is always crouching at the door telling us to get more than what we currently have. You want to help someone, but you also want the credit. You, you want to love someone, but you want your needs met first. You want to sacrifice for the greater good, but really only if enough is out there for you on the other side. But when we become slaves of Christ, when He saves us and transfers us into His kingdom, we find a freedom that we've looked for everywhere else. We're actually free, finally, to do the good we want to do because we don't care anymore if we get the credit, do we? We realize that we can only do anything good because God is at work in us to do it. We humble ourselves so that God gets the glory. We give without wanting anything back. We serve without needing anything in return. We're free to honor others and to respect authority. When we come under God's spiritual authority, we find the liberation of His restrictions. We find true freedom. We finally have the freedom to do what's right, no matter what it means for us. Because in the end, this life we live, we live now to God. And because we know we're firmly in Him, He'll get the glory. And whatever happens to us, we know He'll take care of us. Now Peter wraps this paragraph up in verse 17 with four commands. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There is a way that we can use our freedom as a pretext for abusive, non-submissive talk. Or we can use it as a foundation for honor. God wants the latter. He's asking us for His sake to honor everyone, to speak well of them without selfish motive, to treat them with dignity and respect because we're all created in God's image. Honor is one way that we love the brotherhood. When we treat everyone with the dignity that God places on them, we experience the felt presence of the Spirit. We know what that's like, don't we? We've experienced that here at Refuge. Now notice what Peter says about God and the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. That's interesting. <laughs> The call to fear God is placed in contrast to honoring the emperor. The emperor is, is to be shown respect due his office, but he is not to be feared. God alone is to be feared. We know where ultimate authority lies. So no matter how powerful the government is, we know their power is but a splinter compared to this forest of God's power. We can honor them, but we must not fear them. They have a lot of say in our lives, but not ultimate say. And in fact, this actually leaves room for civil disobedience. When the government asks you to do something that God forbids, you must obey God, not the government. Like our Kenyan brothers and sisters, we do not murder in the name of freedom. We, in fact, would rather suffer. And in so many ways, that's where we find ourselves in this world, isn't it? Suffering. But that's where Jesus found himself. 
And what did he do? Look down at verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Moment by moment, as we submit to God and look to him, he gives us power to carry on, to do crazy things like submitting to the government and honoring everyone and loving the brotherhood and fearing God. Peter is not giving us here a pathway out of suffering as if our submission to the government will relieve the church of some suffering. Rather, it is a beacon of hope to a suffering world. The church of Christ has a power that the world does not. We have a freedom that the world does not. We have a sort of invincibility that the world does not. We can live in less than ideal circumstances and not lose hope because our hope is found in Christ alone. We are not imprisoned by our own security because in this world, there really isn't any. We look beyond to God and find our security in Him and Him alone, purchased by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so by submitting to Christ, to the Lord, we can actually bless the nation we live in. We can provide a refuge for those lost and lonely. We can be a place of healing and liberation and hope. We can, in God's mighty hands, we can be an outpost of heaven. As we engage according to God's will in the world of, of, of government and politics, and God's name is no longer defamed in public for our less-than-Christian actions, we actually begin to shine bright to the watching world, offering a hope that's beyond this world that actually makes an impact on this world. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the privilege of being yours. For the honor of coming under your lordship and Lord, because we're here, we're so grateful to listen to you. That when you call us to submission, we don't have to fight that because we've already learned how wonderful it can actually be coming under you. Lord, we ask you for the grace to, to understand a passage like this, to apply it appropriately in our lives, but we trust you. We know we will do what is ultimately for your glory and for our good. Because, Lord, by your grace, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.